Hi, I'm Ben Worthen from Sequoia, and welcome to the Sequoia Grove Pricing Podcast. Pricing is one of the easiest ways to increase profits and communicate the value of your product, but almost every startup gets it wrong. On October 23rd, as part of the Sequoia Grove Meetup Series, Phil Libin, CEO of Evernote, and Sequoia's Rulof Botha conducted a workshop on pricing with about 40 entrepreneurs. In this podcast, edited from the event, the two discuss what price says about your product. The conversation begins with Rulof. For any of you who have studied economics, I think that the notion of classical economics just doesn't really apply in the real world. The truth is that uh, pricing is not a perfect science. There's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of art. Um, think about all the behavioral science that goes into that, all the ways in which people are irrational. Uh, what are the other products that they anchor to when they think about your product and therefore could you price very differently? Could you use things like decoy pricing, which is really effective uh, to create a very different framework for your pricing? Think about price, not in terms of cost, because I think that's the instinct of a startup. Think of it in terms of value delivered and certainly perceived value on the side of the customer. Because too often I think a company thinks about, this is what it costs us to build it, let's charge X. Well, maybe the customer values it at Y, so turn the equation around completely. And so we started thinking of price the same way that we think about features. You know, when we, ever, when we put in some features for a product, we think about, well, what do we want this feature to, to achieve? But we never thought about price that way. Uh, and uh, it became very useful to think about price as helping us achieve a particular thing. And we've got, you know, a few examples of how we've done that and, and you know, the effects that it's had. So it's been really eye-opening to, to even think about it. Is that the gap between the perceived value and the price is how happy your customers are to buy something. That is the incentive to buy. And so I think most of the time, what we really want to optimize for is we really want to increase the perceived value. Like the first order problem is don't, not to screw around with the price, is to increase the perceived value. So increasing the perceived value in this model will always get you more money because even if you increase the perceived value and you keep the price the same, more people will buy and so you'll make more money. But also increasing the perceived value gives you the room to, to move the price up. So the first order exercise is to say, the, the primary purpose of the price is to increase the perceived value. So what should it be priced at in order to get people to think or to perceive or to actually feel that the value is higher? Um, and as soon as we started thinking about it that way, it, it, it really changed, you know, it changed the way we, we, we thought about it. I would also argue that it's not necessarily hard to reverse these decisions. Um, you know, I mean, it's painful, but you, you can do it. You know, you can always just say, hey, we made a mistake or whatever. And so it's not, it's not actually that big a deal. Um, it's also, when you're testing different prices, um, testing things, there's very limited value to testing things like for a limited time only. Like you don't, like testing sales or discounts or coupons is probably not going to give you the best signal for, for what the right price is because really what you're testing there is the, the limited time value nature of something. So you, you, you're kind of conditioning your customers to, you know, wait for the next deal or something like that, which is a, if that's your business model, that's fine, but that could be an unintended side effect. So I kind of frown on doing too much, like, you know, for 24 hours only, it's 50% off. I mean, you can do that sometimes if they're well anchored, but, but for the most part, I would just say, if you want to test the price difference, change the price and then change it back if you don't, you know, if you don't like the results. Uh, but don't, don't say we're going to change the price for limited time only because that'll, that'll totally skew your results. Let me kind of maybe give one specific example with some, some rough numbers for something that we did. So um, we, uh, so we bought a, a company called Penultimate. Uh, you know, it's a great uh, best-selling uh, iPad handwriting app. 
uh, and we, we, we bought the company and we, we integrated you know, Penultimate. And Penultimate uh, was a dollar. It was a 99 cent app in the App Store when we bought it. And for about a year and a half before we bought it, Ben, who was running Penultimate, he experimented with different price points. And his goal was to, was to maximize revenue. He was basically, you know, it's a lifestyle business. He just wanted to maximize <laughs> revenue. And so he tested price points all the way from like $6, I think, down to $1. Um, and he found that uh, $1 was kind of the sweet spot. Like he was making more money selling his app for 99 cents than for, you know, $2.99 or $3.99. That was just kind of how the dynamics worked because the, the number of purchases dropped significantly uh, at the higher price points. Uh, and so when we bought them, it was, it was a dollar. And we bought them in May of uh, last year. And um, from May till the end of January, so for about nine months, we just kept selling it for a dollar. And during that time period, and I'm, I'm rounding down just to make the math easy, but during that time period, we sold roughly a million, let's just a little bit more, but let's just say a million units. So it was a million dollars in revenue that we got over that time period from downloads. Um, and then at the end, at the end of that nine month period, we made it free. Uh, so that we was did. Kind of <laughs> just we made it free, uh, and um, and we showed an analysis to do it because uh, you know we have a board of directors and they like to know these things. So we did analyze it and say we we think that by making it free, we're going to make more money. And our analysis basically went: we're going to make it free, but we're going to ask some of those people to register for Evernote, and then that'll that will feed through uh, to our freemium pipeline, and at the end result, we make more money. And here's how it actually turned out. So. Uh, Roughly, let's, it was maybe more, but just to make the math easy, let's just say 1%. 1% of the people who downloaded it later on became paying Evernote subscribers um, at, at about 40 bucks a year, kind of on average, because they don't all stick around for the full year, but let's say about 40 bucks. So that uh, $40, 1%, that's 40 cents. So the, our average value of someone who downloads the app went from a dollar to 40 cents. So that's the wrong direction. But instead of having a million downloads, now that we made it free, we had 10 times as many downloads. So we got 10 million downloads instead of 1 million downloads. And that's actually pretty typical in the App Store. The App Store for apps is super price sensitive. Uh, so changing, like lowering the price is going to make a big impact on the number of people that download it. So we had 10 times more people downloading it at 40 cents a person on average, uh, which means that we made $4 million rather than you know, $1 million just by, just by changing the price to free. Um, but our goal in changing the price to free was to increase the number of people that would be using it that, because we had this other pipeline of Evernote Premium that we could feed them to. If we didn't have this, then lowering the price to free would have gotten zero revenue. Um, uh, so that was already a good move. And then um, about uh, nine months later, so about three weeks ago, almost as if we had a plan for this all along, um, we introduced the, the Evernote Stylus. Right? So we released about three weeks ago, we, we released the... Uh, the, the JotScript stylus, which is ridiculously the best stylus in the universe. Um, and uh, it's 75 bucks. And roughly 1% of people who use um, Penultimate are buying this thing. Right? It's a little bit more, but let's just round it down to 1%. So that's $75 at about 1%, so that's 75 cents uh, per user. So that's $7.5 million from, um, from that same 10 million people that downloaded. So, by reducing the price from a from dollar to zero, we went from making a million dollars to making whatever, eleven and a half million dollars, uh, right? Yeah, eleven and a half million dollars. Uh, and of course, a big chunk of that is actually recurring. So we'll make not the stylus portion, but uh, you know, the, 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 the subscription portion will recur. 
So in that case, like it was a pretty obvious decision that the right thing to do was to lower the price. But it was only because we had this pipeline of other stuff, like related stuff, well-integrated stuff that we knew we, can, we could sell to these people. And if we didn't have that, if we didn't have Evernote, and if we didn't have plans to make the stylus, then we wouldn't have made that decision. Uh, but since we did, it was kind of an easy call. Many, many of the companies that we back at Sequoia will tell us that they are taking something that used to cost X and they've reduced it by 90%. They're not going to charge as much as the competitors do and they end up shrinking the market. And in some cases, they do grow the market because more units are for sale, but because the prices are so much lower, the aggregate dollars in the industry shrink. But obviously, it's better off for customers. And if you are able to be that disruptor, I think you're in a very strong position. Yeah, I think it's probably what uh, I think it's what Apple is doing now to Microsoft with uh, the announcements yesterday. I think this is a, you know, I think the the big announcements, like everyone was talking about the skinny iPads, and the skinny iPads are, I mean. Right, I mean, I'm, I'm not fooling anyone. Like, I'm obviously going to buy one of each, but uh, that's not actually the interesting thing. The interesting thing was the, you know, free, like Apple is punching Microsoft at Microsoft's two profit centers, which is, you know, OS upgrades and, and Office. And uh, like, that's going to shrink that market in terms of dollar amount. Like, it's going to, it's just going to destroy a lot of, a lot of dollars for both companies, but Apple can take it and Microsoft can't. And so this is, sometimes this is, I think, a very, you know, pricing can be a very aggressive tool uh, as well, which... I doubt you know too many startups don't really have the luxury of doing this, but uh, when your company's that size, you can, you know, you can you can use pricing very uh, very assertively. But it's a, it's also useful to remember that uh, we had this example at a, a company where I'm on the board called Zoom, which is an international money transfer service. So they've innovated by allowing people to send money abroad uh, to loved ones using the internet instead of going to a Western Union down the street where you typically pay an eight or ten percent fee. And they've gone in and they can deliver this very inexpensively. Uh, and their average fee is 3 to 4%. Now, part of the reason they've been able to get away with it is Western Union has this big existing business. And if Western Union tries to compete on price, uh, they'll just butcher their, their financials, right? They can't afford to do it. If you're this big incumbent, you, you, you know, there's this little company that's sort of an ankle biter <laughs> initially. Uh, they just can't afford to compete with you. And before you know it, that little company can build something substantial. At the first pitch that we did, at Sequoia, uh, I had this, uh, um, I had this, this this set of charts that basically said, I think there's, and if three um, three different types of business models, and they basically vary by um, how the perceived value changes over time, uh, over the time since your first exposure to the product. And so, if you kind of imagine the graphs, you've got the perceived value on the on the vertical axis, and you've got time since first exposure to the product on the horizontal axis. And most products, the, their greatest perceived value is at the beginning. Um, so, like, if you you know if you buy a hamburger, like the greatest perceived value is like right as you're eating it, um, and then it, it, it the perceived value drops over time. So, like after you you know once you've already eaten it, like you're just not getting that much value out of it. Uh, and the same is true for most things. And it's like that's true for most like video games, like most games, not all, but most video games. You know, when I download it in the App Store and I buy it, like my perceived value is like right in the beginning when I'm playing it, and you know after I've beaten it or I lose interest, my perceived value goes down. And that's probably 95% of the businesses out there of the products out there. And if that's your perceived value, if, if, if you always want to charge at the point of the highest perceived value, because that's when you want to collect money. And so if the, if the point of highest perceived value is at the beginning, then you should just have a very traditional business model where you just, you just get money up front. So like, that's why there aren't very many freemium you know, hamburger places. Like you just kind of just sell burgers. Then there's a different type of business where the perceived value more or less stays constant over time. And those are mostly like uh, like content subscription 
uh, services. So like I, you know, I read The Economist. Uh, I subscribe to The Economist every month um, because it's, there's three, there's three uh, newspapers that I pay for. I pay for The New York Times because I, I like reading The New York Times. Uh, I pay for The Wall Street Journal because um, it's, it's useful for me to read The Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I pay for The Economist because it's very important for me to be seen reading The Economist. Uh, like I think that's a, like whenever I'm on an airplane, it's important for me that the guy next to me sees that I'm reading The Economist. Uh, so I pay for that. Uh, and, um, uh, but the value I get from that kind of stays constant. Like the old, the old issues don't increase in value, it just sort of stays constant. And so if you've got this business where the perceived value stays constant, then you, can be, you should be charging a little bit you know, every time. Then you can be doing like an advertising model or a subscription model or something like that. And the third type is very rare, but it's what we really try to build at Evernote. And I think some of the, some of the best scaling internet companies have this thing in common, which is the perceived value increases over time. So like the more you use the product, the higher your perceived value is, the better it seems. And for those, freemium works really well because the highest point to perceived value is kind of always in the future. And so you can always make a case that you ought to wait before you start charging. Uh, because you really want that emotional connection to, 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 to increase you know, before you really start to monetize or before you really start to, 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 to you know, turn the screws on monetization. And so at Evernote, what we do is we say, um, when we look at a customer, we say, we have the rest of your life to make money from you as long as we keep giving you a good experience and you keep coming back. And so all decisions we make are more about how do we keep you coming back month after month uh, and then charging you a little bit so that when you add up how much you're going to be able to, to get from you over the course of your life, it's going to be much higher than if we try to squeeze the value out of you sooner, um, but then you know, maybe get you to leave. But that's only because that works for us at Evernote because our long-term retention is so high. If I was making a video game, I couldn't do that. If I was making a video game, I would look at a customer and say, I've only got you for a few days or a few weeks, so I've got to squeeze as much money uh, uh, as I can. Uh, but but the other thing is, I think, Rolf, you had a really good um, you had a really good example about uh, how like increasing the price improved the uh, the customer experience. This is the experience of what happened with Yahoo when they were right, right, right. How many of you remember the the Yahoo had an auction business? <laughs> yeah. So in two thousand, Yahoo. It's in two thousand, they tried to buy eBay um, or ninety nine maybe, and they they didn't close in the transaction. Another one of those sort of classic stories. And Yahoo decided, well, we couldn't buy eBay. We're going to crush them. We've got a bigger bigger audience. And on Yahoo auctions, they decided the best way to do that is to make auctions free. To the to the listers. To the listers, right? Because eBay has this, you know, you have to pay to list an item. You have to pay extra to have the picture. Pay for it to be bold. Pay for it to be featured. All these other things. Um, and it actually had a perverse effect that it put Yahoo Auctions into a complete tailspin. Because by making it free, there was no filter on the quality that was coming in. And Yahoo Auction site became a nightmare for consumers because it was flooded with junk. <laughs> so it was this weird phenomenon that what you might have thought was a great, a great move actually completely boomeranged and was a terrible move for them. So, But in very much that sense where at this point, like the price was all about... like eBay charging the listing fee had as much to do with improving the emotional experience of its users. Like the price made it a better experience because it, it kept the non-serious people out. Uh, and that had a knock-on effect much more than just the revenue they got directly you know, from that. I do think it's useful, sorry, I do think it's useful to, to um, think about all these other categories. I mean, it's very hard to, I think, sort of put a boundary around pricing and sort of perfectly carve up 
you know, all the variables. I mean, it's, it's really a multi-factor problem. Any of you were starting a company, you know, 20 years ago, um, you'd have a real challenge. If you were building software, because you probably wouldn't be able to address an international market and you were shipping literary CD-ROMs around the country and your, app probably, your software probably wasn't connected. There was no way for you to do a, an upgrade, release an update in the App Store and you know, improve that bug or fix that bug or anything like that. Um, and the world is so different today. I, mean, I even think about our, our experience at PayPal. There were 300 million people on the planet, the majority of whom didn't have broadband. And that's it's about 15 years ago, you know, 13 years ago. It's not that long ago. And today you have you know, over a billion people that are connected, many of them on broadband. And so the universe that you can address is so different. And that leads to some interesting questions because if you can address so many more units, or you have so many more people you can sell to with a, you know, a product software where your marginal cost is essentially zero, it really begs you know, what sort of pricing model you should have. Is you know, charging for an Adobe Creative Suite maybe still makes sense because there's a small universe of people who use those tools, but if it's consumer related, Maybe you, you literally can address an audience of a billion. And if your product has network effects, that really sort of throws in another wrinkle because you may have a really strong incentive to dominate the network before you ever think about charging. And do you want to make money by charging for your product literally the way that we do at Evernote, or do you want to make money through advertising the way that Google does or the way that Twitter does? We kind of thought about it like this. I think there's, I think there's sort of two prices in the world. Not to oversimplify things, but there's basically two prices in the world. There's there's things that are expensive, and there's things that are that are affordable. And I think the difference is, uh, for your target customer, something is expensive if, in order to buy the product, you usually have to make a trade-off and decide not to get something else. So I think like the new MacBooks are expensive, in the sense that, uh, for their target audience, which is all of us. Most of us aren't just going to go out and immediately buy a new MacBook without thinking like, well, okay, I guess maybe like, then I won't buy this monitor or maybe I'll delay my vacation or whatever. So even for their target audience, they're, they're a good value, but you have to kind of think about it. And a product is cheap, uh, I don't want to say cheap, let's just say affordable or inexpensive, if for the, the core audience, they don't have to make that decision. Uh, so, you know, uh, when we priced Evernote Premium, we wanted it to be, we wanted it to fall into that inexpensive bucket, which is, for the people who we wanted to attract, which is modern professional knowledge workers, we thought $5 a month is not something that they're gonna, just because they buy Evernote, they're gonna not buy something else. Like people are gonna think, well, I guess I'll pay for Evernote Premium and then I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll do one less Starbucks you know, coffee uh, you know, a month. Um, and um, as long as we stay in that right bucket, as long as we say, okay, for Evernote Premium, it needs to be in the inexpensive bucket, um, then I think we have a lot of room to, to kind of fiddle around with it you know, afterwards, but we're not gonna lose too many users. If we do something that, that makes it verge into that, okay, now it's questionable, now I have to think about whether or not to buy it or buy something else, then it becomes much harder. Um, like Evernote socks? Yeah, well, the socks are there, like the socks are not cheap, and they're not cheap for a reason, uh, and, and part of it is because, yeah, they're kind of the anchor you know, price. <laughs> uh, but they're also really expensive to make, they're the world's greatest socks. Uh, so, we wanted Evernote business to be priced the same way. So for our target customers, which are serious businesses, we wanted a price that was in the you know, uh, affordable category that most CIOs wouldn't like really beat themselves up over the 10 bucks per month per employee. Um, but we may not have gotten that right everywhere. So there are definitely countries we operate in where $5 a month for our target users may not be in the cheap category. You know, like, I don't know whether in Brazil or in India, even for the 
the generally you know middle class smartphone owning users there, five bucks a month may actually just be just be on that edge. So that's why we're we're kind of doing the testing to decide where is that where is that threshold. Um, but for Evernote Business in particular, we've set a goal. Uh, we've set a specific goal, which is our specific goal is we want a million paid seats in you know a certain time frame, and that volume is more important to us than the dollar amount we make. So because we ex anticipate our retention rates on business to be just as high, if not better, than on consumer. And so if we get that large pool of people who are paying something, something non-trivial, uh, we can then we can monetize that much more in, in outer years if we get to that, that initial base. So we've explicitly made the decision that for Evernote Business, the price is there to support the, the goal of getting a million you know, paid seats. Um, and so we're probably not going to screw around with the price too much unless we think that increasing the price would actually make us more likely to sell more seats, which is something, which is an exercise we're going through right now. So we're saying, well, if we want to get a million paid seats, how many of those are going to come from small companies and how many are going to come from big companies? It's plausible to say that a large number of those is going to come from very big companies, in which case we may actually sell more if it was more expensive, because then we can, you know, we can, at a higher price, we can have more kind of enterprise features that, that those customers may deserve, but also because a lot of big companies, when they're making these purchases, like they've got a form somewhere where they fill out and they have to like fill out how much of a discount they got. And so like if the goal is we have to give them a discount or else they won't buy it, but they care much more about the percentage discount than about the actual amount we're paying, then maybe we should be charging 50 bucks a month and giving people a discount, you know, rather than charging, you know, 10. So if we decide to raise the price in Evernote business, it's only going to be because we think that will result in us selling more seats because that's what we've chosen to optimize for. In a few years, once we've achieved our goal, then we can go back and say, okay, now we choose to optimize for, for bottom line, and that, that, may, that may trigger us to either increase or decrease the price. I mean, think about a lot of the products on the shelf back there. You know, why do people, why do people pay for um, you know, one brand of vodka over another? I mean, some of that is to do with the marketing and the positioning, even though objectively they, they cost about the same to make, and they're candidly sort of the same thing, too. <laughs> and that has to do with the effectiveness of marketing. That's really um, true for vodka, by the way. That's not true for like scotch or anything that you ought to be drinking. <laughs> but vodka, I totally agree with. That's a sucker's game. <laughs> but um, I mean, candidly, I think that's why there's a there's a huge role for marketing. I mean, why do we pay so much for luxury brands? You know, why is that? That because you know something has a label on that says you know Armani, people are willing to pay a lot more for it. But if you know the same thing has a label ripped off and it's for sale at an uh, an outlet mall, you're willing to pay one-tenth for it. I mean, that's all about brand and perception and how do you feel about yourself and do you wrap it out around my ego and can I show off the brand because it's, you know, it's like one of the things we found at Jawbone, you know, Jawbone makes these wearable consumer electronics rather than <clears throat> things that are at your desk. So, you know, in the, in the sort of desktop era, people didn't really walk around admiring how good your keyboard looked or the mouse that you were using, right? And so, you just bought it based on functionality. And increasingly, people have electronics that are wearable. Design becomes important. And if you can communicate sort of a design aesthetic and a brand value associated with that, you have a, a very different price umbrella. Even if functionally you tear the thing apart, the electronics underneath are the same. And I think you know, anchoring is also an interesting concept here, uh, or and even association. So most people don't have a firm understanding of what the value is. And if, and if they do, it, it, it's, it, it isn't actually it's not. Uh, it, it, it isn't that firm. You can usually you can usually change it a little bit or even a lot, but the signals are like, well, what is the product next to? What else are you thinking about? So, like, I bought. Um, I was at Whole Foods the other day and I got this yogurt, 
um, and it, was, it came like in a glass jar. It was this, you know, like artisanal yogurt or whatever. And uh, it was in like this fancy, you know, glass jar with stuff on it. And uh, I got it home and I actually looked at the receipt. Uh, and I noticed that like Whole Foods had charged me a $1.50 deposit for the jar because they wanted me to like bring the jar back. So it was like a $1.50 deposit for the jar. And I was kind of like, this jar is like a $1.50. It's like, that's ridiculous. I don't want to pay like a $1.50 tax on this yogurt because the whole yogurt cost, I don't know how much it was, but a few bucks. And, you know, to me, like that jar was in no way worth $1.50. But then I ate the yogurt and, uh, you know, washed the jar because I was going to take it back. And now when I was looking at the jar without any yogurt in it, I'm like, that's a pretty nice jar. Like, if that jar was like empty, if they were selling that like on One King's Lane as like decorative, you know, jars, I'd pay a lot more than a buck fifty. I'd be like, yeah, twenty bucks for that empty jar. That's pretty cool. But since it came with yogurt in it, I was thinking about it as like, what's the yogurt worth, not what's the jar worth. It's a yogurt vessel. Yeah. So like, yeah, like they, they decrease the value of it by filling it with yogurt. Uh, so I think that's kind of the point. It's just like, don't put yogurt in your product. <laughs> and you know, and you can increase people's perceived value of it. How many of you are familiar with Virtu? Yeah, some of you. Right, so, so Virtu is. Have you seen these? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Virtu are Nokia phones. Yeah. Like literally, they're Nokia phones with a different clamshell. And they put them in these very nice malls next to you know the Armani store or the Cartier store, whatever the case is, and they charge a lot more for these phones. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. But it's all about positioning. What are the things that you put adjacent to it to try to get the you know the the brand glow from it? I mean. It's really silly, but it helps. I mean, if you're a small company, I think it's part of why you do brand partnerships. Uh, one of the things we did at PayPal earlier on is we, we were worried that people wouldn't trust us. So we did deals with people like Travelers Insurance, and we actually provided an insurance policy, you know, if, you know, in case your account got hacked at PayPal. And part of the reason we wanted to do that is we wanted to get the Travelers little umbrella logo on the PayPal website, because we thought that that was an association that would give people greater trust somewhat similar in that sort of what are the other brands that you can borrow to get around you. Yeah. Well, I think the marketplace is a, that's a whole nother topic, right? And it feeds a little bit into the, the notion of network effects, because if you truly have a marketplace where you have buyers and sellers who can cross-pollinate, right? A buyer on eBay can become a seller on eBay and vice versa. Those are really, really powerful and give you a lot more price leverage because there aren't many substitutes. And if you can dominate uh, just enormous leverage and, and potential for profits. Now, there's a limit to that. So eBay was raising its prices continuously for maybe five or six years. And they eventually reached the limit where it was getting pretty darn expensive to sell your stuff on eBay, and there were substitutes. You could build your own website. You could buy AdWords through Google to drive traffic to your website. And so that ended up putting a ceiling on how much eBay could raise its prices. Um, but the way that Amazon's gone about their marketplace, now offering third-party logistics for companies as well. I mean, it's a wonderful way for them to take the audience that they have, this massive user base, all these credit cards on file, and just make a, a very easy, seamless transaction experience for consumers uh, with a very nice toll that they take from those other sellers. So I think there's a couple of things. Um, first thing is there are two completely different and unrelated types of freemium that are only called the same thing kind of accidentally and actually have nothing to do with each other. And it's pretty important to understand which one we're talking about. So there is freemium like free to play, like what a lot of games use. Uh, and then there's freemium like what uh, Evernote and Dropbox and a few things like, like, like that do. And they're, they're different because uh, they basically come down to what I said earlier, which is the, the expected retention rates. So um, when, you're, when you're doing freemium on something that has a very low expected retention rate, something that's a hit driven business, 
then the whole point of freemium is just to get as many people as possible in the top of the funnel because of the free product, and then to aggressively squeeze them as much as you can as quickly as possible because whatever money you don't get out of them in the first few you know, minutes or days or you know, week or so, you're never going to get out because they're going to move to something else in <laughs> the next hit. And um, then you know, they have no, there's no reason to believe that the next hit is going to be one of yours. It could be, it could be somebody else's. And so all of the, the freemium stuff that's really kind of free to play, the stuff that uh, you know, Zynga does and a lot of these other companies, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like that is its own animal that is actually totally different from uh, the, the, the longer retention subscription model that, that, that we do. Um, when you have that longer time period, then, uh, free, then the, free, the, the, goal, the role of the free product changes. The role of the free product at Evernote is not to get you to, to pay for the premium product. Uh, that's kind of surprising to some people, so it's kind of it's worth repeating. So if you're making a game, the goal of the free game is to get you to buy the stuff in the game. The goal of Evernote Free is not to get you to, to, to pay for anything. The goal of Evernote Free is to get you to use it for the rest of your life, is to get you to stay. Uh, it's more important that you stay than that you pay. Um, like we, we realized that that was fundamentally true for us um, because it rhymes. Um, and, and, Things that rhyme are just more true than things that don't rhyme. Um, but, but the math actually bears it out. So if you stay, you're more likely to, to pay for, you, every month that you stay, you are linearly more likely in the Evernote's model to actually pay for something, and you're more likely to refer your friends to it. Um, so freemium works great if you have the right conditions, and the right conditions are a very good long-term retention rate. So, you know, um, the, the, the people that we lose, we tend to lose in the first you know, few days or month. People who hang around, hang around for a very long time. So you need to have a very, long, uh, very good long-term retention rate. And you need to have marginal costs that are low enough, but you can afford to say, I just want you using it for free for the rest of your life, and I'll be happy. Uh, and if you have those two things, then I think it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, and if you don't, then I think you're, you're maybe in that hits-driven model, which is fine, if and only if you can confidently generate hit after hit after hit, which I certainly don't know how to do, but there's much smarter people than me in the world. Because the other thing is, if it's a, if it's a sharing product within an enterprise, if it's something that there, there is a network effect, you don't want to uh, inhibit usage. So you know, one of the things I was wondering is, you, know, you want to get away from charging at the margin because you actually want to encourage adoption. Because it may be that it provides you with a platform to then layer other services in. You know, especially something that then becomes habitual use. Do you actually want to have a flat price, get in the door, and does it give you an opportunity to sell other things that are value added? Um, but because a lot of the other software that you may, or other services that you may sell, may not have that kind of a network effect where once you get it in, like you're locked in, you know, switching costs become very, very high. I, I've had luck um, uh, or success, uh, not at Evernote as this, but in my previous company where we did a lot more enterprise sales. Um, we, would, uh, we would often discount things for early adopters, but it wouldn't be, we would discount it conditional on, on some other stuff. So we would say, look, you know, we really want to, like, we would love to work with you to figure out the use case. So if you let us, you know, come in and kind of study how you're actually using it and, and, and collect the feedback, you know, like that, that would be really helpful to us. So we'll give you a, a discount based on that. Uh, and so we, 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 that worked pretty well the first, you know, for the first few customers at every major release because, um, you know, it, it it, in effect, gave them a significant discount, uh, but it didn't set the precedent that we would be doing this for everyone. In fact, it kind of made them even more likely to engage with it and feel like they were going to help us, which, which they did. But that's not scalable. Like, we obviously couldn't do that 
you know, all the time. But if you're, if you're, we were just starting out, and so that was an effective thing for the first, you know, for the first handful of customers at every major release. We would say, yeah, if you, you know, if you help us with this, we'll give you a, you know, thirty percent discount, fifty percent discount, whatever, uh, to do that. How many of you have uh, come across this guy Cialdini, who's a professor, I think at Harvard? Some of you are familiar with him. So he's, uh, it's Blair. Do you, do you remember the name of the book? The Persuasion, or what, what is the name of the book? Influence, the power of persuasion. And sort of one of the things that, that always uh, sticks with me about that book is uh, it's very hard to get people to do things if you just tell them to do it. And if you give them a reason, almost independent of, of what you put behind the why or the because, people are just far more likely to do it. Even if it's nonsensical what you say, I'd like you to do this because, it doesn't matter what you say, just because you, you provided some justification. So one of the things I was thinking about for, for the enterprise case, because it's somewhat arbitrary, right? You know, do you end up with a 10% discount, a 12% discount, a 15% discount? It's, it's sort of, it becomes um, arbitrary, and then it's just a function of how good a negotiator you are versus the other person. If you can somehow bound it by logic, and it's made up logic, you just say, look, we fitted this logarithmic curve, and it happens to be that at this point, you know, the, the formula pops up that it's a 13% discount, and this is how we built it. Or based on our cost model, we're willing to give you this discount, and actually giving a justification even if it's a little bit made up, may actually be really effective at preventing you from going down a, a spiral of negotiation. And I think one of the things I'd like you to take away from this is, you know, you're not going to get it right. Even if you walk away from here and make some changes, I promise you those won't be the right changes. One of the things I wanted to, to encourage with the pricing workshop we had at Sequoia is encourage people to rethink about this. Because part of what I find is people set the price, and it's like what we had at Evernote, sort of you, the years roll by and you keep adding features, and the one thing you don't revisit is pricing. It can have such a big impact on your business. I mean, you can, you know, especially for people who have as high gross margins as the sort of businesses you're building, you know, a 10% change in your pricing could flow virtually straight to the bottom line. It could take you from being a 10% pre-tax margin business to being a 20% pre-tax margin business. 10% change in price can double your profits. Um, so what I what I encourage you to do is keep thinking about it, keep revisiting your assumptions, and don't just assume that it's fixed because it's probably not the right. We hope you enjoyed the Sequoia Grove podcast. Please check out sequoiacap.com slash grove for more useful business building advice.